Previously on Not a Hoax, Not a Dream. Let's see, you've taken over my body. We meet again, Jimmy. Ben. Wait. You didn't take over my body? Wait, what? is this a third body? Is this a. Are we in your dog? <coughs> what are you doing? I'm trying to flex you out of the body, man. All right, and I think I'm in control of my body, in my body again. So it looks like we're good. How are you feeling over there, Jimmy? <coughs> okay, we still have some things to work out, I guess. Welcome to Not a Hoax, Not a Dream, the podcast about comic book characters who just don't quit. You can try to write them off, but they'll just get written back in. You can try to kill them, but they'll just get better. I'm your host, Ben Rathbone, and I'm recording from the Savage Land, a strange place out of time where dinosaurs rule the land. Right now, though, I'm more concerned with this strange, rabid dog following me. Sorry, I had something stuck in my throat. Ben, it's it's me. It's Jimmy. Oh, shit. Right, right, right. Hey, uh, not to get weird or anything, but could you please scratch behind my ear? I have been dying to have it scratched. Uh, yeah, yeah, sure, man. Sure, sure. <laughs> what are we going to do about this? How are we going to get you back into your body? <sighs> Honestly, I don't even know how I got in here in the first place, so it's all, it's all witchcraft to me, I guess. Yeah, I... You know, I think, just judging by our environment, I think if we wander around long enough, we should be able to find some kind of secret laboratory abandoned by a villain. So maybe we can go that route. I just gotta be careful of the Tarzans running around. Let's keep a low profile. I just hope we don't run into that asshole Kazar. I hate him so much. You know what? That's the guy I'm talking about. He's the worst. He's kind of a dick. He is. He's the worst. I hate him. And he always shows up every time anyone goes to the Savage Land. Yeah. I haven't seen him yet, but I feel like it's just a matter of time. While we're here, I was in the middle of a podcast about Magneto, Master of Magnetism. At one point, he was here. Yeah? Maybe he's got something that can fix me down here. Yeah. He, he's he's kind of... He, I feel like he's more the, the type that would transform people into dogs instead of reversing it. But maybe we can, like... Switch a cord back and forth? I don't know. Yeah, we, we can give it a shot. Welcome. This is Stan Lee of Marvel Comics warning you to look around you. Your classmates, your friends. You never know which one of them may be a mutant. A person born with strange and wondrous powers. Now, some mutants, like the X-Men, use their special gifts for good. But then there are the terrorist mutants who plan to destroy the human race. I hate him. Magneto is introduced in 1963, right there in X-Men number one, alongside Professor X, Cyclops, Jean Grey, Beast, Iceman, and Angel. He's there from the beginning, and not only does he remain one of the property's most interesting and poignant characters to this day, but I'd argue that the way Magneto's character developed over time is one of the most fascinating evolutions of a character in not just comics, but all of fiction. Looking back at his first appearances is often a bewildering experience because the aspects of his character he's most famous for wouldn't be introduced for about another 20 years, under writer Chris Claremont. Magneto is famously motivated by his experiences as a Jewish Holocaust survivor, but we don't get even a hint of that until X-Men number 150 in 1981. 
Another of the more compelling things about Magneto as a villain is his friendship with Charles Xavier, but that's a retcon written into Uncanny X-Men number 161 in 1982. I'd love to cover these issues in further episodes, but basically this is all to say that Magneto in this episode is almost a different guy. But perhaps the roots were there, buried deep. Let's take a look at the introduction to Marvel Comics creator's choice X-Men VHS Enter Magneto Deadly Reunions, where Stan Lee talks to Fabian Nicieza, Scott Lobdell, and Bob Harris about the creation of the Master of Magnetism. The thing that I really like most about the relationship between Magneto and Professor Xavier is we've always tried to have villains, or at least very often, who weren't totally bad. Now, to me, Magneto really thought he was a good guy. He felt he's a member of a group that are meant to rule the world, homo superior, as opposed to homo sapiens. And he felt we're persecuted, we're hounded and hunted. Why shouldn't we strike back? We're superior to the human race. And from his point of view, maybe he was right. And, maybe, and Professor Zetiar could always understand that. And he was always trying to reason with him and, and make him realize it. A bit later in the conversation, Scott Lobdell makes the now famous, or maybe infamous, comparison of Charles Xavier to Martin Luther King, and Magneto to Malcolm X. Many people make this comparison because it may seem cool on the surface, but the more you know about the real-life men and fictional characters involved, it fails to hold up to scrutiny. Some even take it one step further and claim that Stanley intentionally based the two characters off of the civil rights leaders. Lee notably does not say in this recording, or in any other interview or article that I've seen, that Professor X and Magneto were based off of MLK and Malcolm X. The closest he's ever said is that once the series started rolling, he enjoyed using X-Men to explore ideas about racism and bigotry. In the end, the basis of this claim is pure speculation from the fact that X-Men premiered in the midst of the 60s civil rights movement. To set it in time, the March on Washington occurs two months after X-Men number one hits the newsstands. As monumental as the civil rights movement is, it isn't the only thing happening during that time in history. The Cold War defines global politics, and capitalist allied countries like the U.S. begin mapping the Earth into simple ideological categories. There's the first world countries like themselves, the second world countries are the Soviet Union and its Eastern European bloc, and then there's the third world countries. Everyone else. In 1961, the Bay of Pigs and Cuban Missile Crisis established the third world as the battleground for the Cold War. Anyway, let's just talk about a comic. The X-Men, number four. Sensational script by Stan Lee. Dynamic drawings by Jack Kirby. Imaginative inking by Paul Reinman. And legible lettering by Art Simic. We opened the X-Men, honing their skills against every mechanical trap Professor Charles Xavier's danger room can throw at them. After the training is finished, Xavier has a surprise for his students. A cake to celebrate one year since the formation of the X-Men which means an entire year has passed in four issues. Stan clearly didn't realize he should be pacing this franchise. The scene then shifts from one group of mutants eating around a table to another one. This new ensemble is the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. Like any good foil, the Brotherhood are in many ways the same as the X-Men, but in many other ways different. While the X-Men eat off of common plates, the Brotherhood drink from golden goblets. While the X-Men all wear blue and yellow uniforms, each one of the Brotherhood's costumes is different. We have the squat toad, dressed like a jester, the twins Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch, and middle-aged mastermind, a weaver of illusions. 
When Mastermind starts being all creepy with the Scarlet Witch, the woman points her finger at a water pitcher, causing it to spill over on the jerk's pants. Mastermind threatens to drive her mad with illusions, and her brother Quicksilver rushes across the room with a superhuman speed to punch the miscreant. Their squabbling is cut short, however, when Toad evokes the name of their leader. While the X-Men are led by Professor X, the Brotherhood is led by Magneto, Master of Magnetism, the most powerful of evil mutants, who, at this very time, is in the process of commandeering a former war freighter from a pair of unsuspecting suits. Once he's aggressively closed on all other bids for the Destroyer and locked the shipping line employees in a closet, Magneto takes control of the mighty war vessel. He takes his new ship to a lonely, uncharted island in the Atlantic, where the leaping toad and lurching mastermind await him. The two dish out their biased accounts of the Brotherhood's quarrel, after which Magneto leaves them to speak to Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch alone. Quicksilver threatens to take his sister and leave, but Magneto reminds the Scarlet Witch of how they first met. It wasn't long ago that the woman was chased by a mob of angry villagers, pitchforks and all. Remembering this, the Scarlet Witch agrees to stay, in order to repay the debt she owes him and Quicksilver reluctantly agrees to stay as well, in order to look after his sister. Even though he doesn't completely buy into Magneto's vision, Quicksilver does express his distrust of humans, a thread that Magneto happily expounds on. Why should we love the Homo sapiens? They hate us, fear us because of our superior power. That is why we hide on this fortified isle, waiting for the time to strike, to take control of Earth from them. And now that we have our ship, we shall launch our first attack. The five of us, alone and unaided, shall conquer an entire nation, as a test of our supreme power. Days later, Charles Xavier reads about a strange attack being carried out by a freighter against Santo Marco, a small nation in South America. He calls out a telepathic red alert to the X-Men. But when the five teens assemble before their teacher, they find the professor in a trance, communicating with some unseen entity. I knew you were trying to contact me, Magneto. I will never tell where I am, but we can meet on a mental plane. Send me your thoughts and I will amplify them. Only you and your X-Men stand between the mutants and world conquest. Why? Why do you fight us? For you too are a mutant. But I seek to save mankind, not destroy it. We must use our powers to bring about a golden age on Earth, side by side with ordinary humans. Never. The humans must be our slaves. They are not worthy to share dominion of Earth with us. You have made your choice. Forever we are mortal foes. The X-Men will stop you, Magneto. It will be mutant against mutant, to the death if need be. But mankind must be saved. Xavier wakes with a start and informs his students that Magneto and his brotherhood have begun to wage war against mankind. Speaking of which, off the coast of Santo Marco, the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants fire their ship's cannons at the hills behind the main city in order to shake the confidence of the nation. After this initial show of force is complete, their next maneuver falls into place as an entire army marches down the streets. The Santo Marco citizens have no way of knowing that the soldiers are illusions created by Mastermind. In the ensuing chaos, Magneto seizes control of the government and military, and stations himself at the seat of power, a castle at the center of the capital. Professor X and the X-Men are able to sneak past the border, while posing as a professor and his students. But, but you know, the non-superpowered type of professor and his students. The X-Men devise a strategy and begin their multi-pronged assault on the castle. First, we see Beast scale the stone walls of an outer tower, 
and knock out two guards before they even know he's there. Once at the top, though, he has to contend with Toad, who is able to kick Hank off the top, forcing the beast to cling back to the wall. His climb back up is interrupted when Mastermind makes it seem that the wall Beast is holding onto has disappeared, causing the X-Man to lose his balance and plummet to the ground. Meanwhile, on another side of the castle, Angel dodges heavy gunfire as he soars through the air. He's able to take out the soldiers, but has a harder time contending with Quicksilver, who is too fast for him to land a single hit. Angel is able to outmaneuver the speedster, however, and tricks Quicksilver into running into a wall. The Scarlet Witch doesn't take too kindly to someone hurting her brother, though. She points to the ceiling above Angel, and the roof caves in, the piles of debris falling down and knocking the X-Man out. Magneto shows up, but so does Cyclops, and he lets loose with the optic blasts, knocking the castle's electric generator out of its moorings, and then knocking it outside the castle completely, where Iceman catches it on an ice slide. It's all part of the plan, I'm assuming. I don't know, it's not really clear what the plan was, if there really was one. It seemed like they were all just doing random shit. In any case, the three meet up with Beast, who was saved from his deathfall by Marvel Girl, who was also there. They all go looking for Magneto and friends, but run into a wall of flame and fire that sends them into a panic. Luckily, Professor X shows up and reveals the fire to be an illusion. While the X-Men collect their wits, Magneto rigs a bomb to explode once the heroes catch up to their current location. He also prepares a nuclear bomb, rigged to destroy all of Santo Marco in 10 minutes. Quicksilver objects at the loss of innocent life, but Magneto will hear none of it. Have I not told you? They are merely homo sapiens. They would kill us if they could. We only fight in self-defense. The X-Men quickly approach the room. When Professor X senses the trap ahead, he hurls himself out of his wheelchair before Beast can open the door. The explosive sets off, knocking everyone back, giving Magneto and his brotherhood time to escape. But one of the evil mutants has something to do before he leaves. Quicksilver runs to the nuclear bomb and deftly defuses it before rejoining his sister and Magneto. The Brotherhood of Evil Mutants escape on their stolen freighter, leaving to fight the X-Men another day. Do you want to talk about X-Men number four? Oh yeah. So first off, again, I love the vintage comics for their campiness, and they describe the intensity of things that are happening on panels because they don't really display the intensity, so... A lot of it is explained instead of displayed in the actual art itself. Yeah. It, it really makes you appreciate how bananas the danger room is in reality. It's just a hot cauldron of fire and steam vents and beasts chucking giant weights at people when they're training. It just seems all over the place. Yeah, it, it is pretty wild. What, what, I, what I think is crazy about the danger room in these early comics is that you never get, and this might even be true in the later comics too, you never get an idea of how big the danger room is. It's just like this wide open space where anything can happen. It's like this nightmare realm of traps. Yeah, and ex this one, Xavier's just kind of parked right in the middle most of the time. Like he's in frame for all these dangerous things that are being exploded and shot around and he's just chilling with his blanket over his lap like i'm not worried about this <laughs> you're kind of right he, it seems like he's just followed him around <laughs> the beast takes a dive into some water and he's right there and and then Iceman's pole vaulting over fire and he's just hanging out <laughs> i guess he knows what he's doing he built the place presumably xavier's He's less, like, tender. I don't know how to describe it in any other way than he's kind of a huge dick in the earlier series. Yeah. Where he's just, just shut up and train harder, man. Yeah. Yeah, oh, you did a good job, but no one cares because check out this. Steam vents. Yeah. I don't know how much of that was intentional or, or it's just kind of how 
people were back then? Like everybody was just an asshole? I'm not sure. Yeah. I mean, at one point he literally says, I will kill you, Magneto. If you want to go toe to toe, we will fight to the death over this. (laughs) Yeah. I will murder mutants. Yeah. So we can get into that because this is the first time that they interact because so so both of their first appearances are in X-Men number one, but Xavier kind of just sends the X-Men off to, to fight him at Cape Citadel. But in this issue, they they have a brief little hangout on the astral plane or something and they, they exchange words. Yeah. So I, you have it's, it's hard for me to get a context of like what the base power is of Xavier and because I'm so used to just like all the knowledge I have. I guess he can't telepathically control people, right? I don't know if he's done that yet. His power seems very base. He can't locate Magneto because he's too far away. And I guess Magneto can just not think about where he is the way they describe that he's like, he can't find Magneto. Yeah. And he has his helmet on and they're meeting in the mental plane. So he's not like protected from Xavier's power, but he's still not doing anything against Magneto to stop him. So I guess he, he had kind of very low tier power when the, the issues came out and it's hard to think about that out of context from today. Yeah, I'm trying to remember. I, I feel like he has forced people to do things and re- rewrote some memories at this point, but I'm not entirely sure. Editor's note. I looked this up afterward. In issue number two, the X-Men fight Vanisher on the White House lawn and Professor X erases the villain's memories and ability to use his powers. In X-Men number three, Charles erases the memories of the Blob and a bunch of carnival workers. Okay, back to the episode. You weren't super concerned about continuity and like what's consistent between their powers and all. Oh no no no! It's probably all, his powers are probably all like based on the convenience of the story at this point. Yeah. Because yeah, Magneto's helmet at this point doesn't protect him against telepathy. That's something that came from the movie when the X-Men movie came out. It's purely a fashion choice. Yeah, yeah. He has it because it looks cool. And, and I guess to hide his identity, which we'll find out later on. Later on, Angel meets up, meets him and doesn't know it's him because he's just never seen him without his helmet, which is kind of hilarious. But yeah, they, they just kind of meet on this mental plane and Magneto's very flustered and angry that Xavier doesn't want to help him take over the world for mutant kind. And Xavier is equally angry and says, yeah, I'm going to kill you, man. That's what I need to do. It's pretty adorable how they tuck him in his legs and all constantly. Everyone flocks to him. They're like little, little, little kids. Yeah. No, I mean, he's definitely like the father figure at this point. I mean, that's kind of his status for, for most of his publication. He's just the, the father figure for all the X-Men. The opposite side of that coin, Magneto seems like he has like no value in anyone's life except for his mission. So he seems like he's ready to sacrifice the mutants. Where in the current storylines, it seems like he'll do anything to protect them. Yeah, yeah. And that's a, that's what's so interesting about him in his early appearances is that he, he's very one-dimensional. He's, he's, he's basically just a villain that yeah. has no anti-hero or kind of like this complexity behind his story. He just wants to blow up humans and keep homo superiors on the top of the food chain. There's some small inklings of the character that, that'll be later on. He saves the Scarlet Witch from this mob of humans and, and says, this is why you can't trust them and we have to rule the Earth is because they'll always fear us. So there's some small, small hints of the way they'll take the char- character later on. But for the most part, he's just a maniacal megalomaniac. Yep. Taking over war boats and... Small countries. Small countries, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is pretty crazy. Yeah, I, I, I 
read the first issue for the Xavier thing you did, and he's like, I'm going to blow up a building. And then three issues later, he's like, I'm going to take over an entire country. <laughs> like, yep. the scale of his success and his power just kind of goes crazy over just those three short issues. Right. He, he, he's very ambitious, just, just on a whim saying, I'm going to take over this military base and take over this boat and then take over this country. It's, it's really kind of interesting that, I mean, I guess he needs, I guess he just basically needs the boat to get to the country. You don't really know why he, he's interested in this country specifically. Otherwise, besides just, besides just getting there, he doesn't really need it, right? Because it's... He does shell the country. I guess that's like their like shock and awe campaign is to yeah show up and shoot a bunch of missiles and then have an invisible army scare them and then he actually converts the real army. Yeah. I, I would imagine that this is what the mid-60s, so so the Cuban Missile Crisis definitely happened a few years prior to this. I would imagine that this is some sort of homage or passive influence from that. Yeah, you know, this dictator trying to take over a small country and, and then use it as a platform to store weapons and specifically nuclear weapons in this issue. So yeah, it's very much influenced by what was going on at the time, definitely. So this is the Brotherhood's first appearance. They kind of get introduced in a way that, that's supposed to mirror the X-Men. So you see X, the X-Men eating cake that Xavier got them because it's their one-year anniversary as a class, which is, you know, they, they really didn't think to, to pace these comics at the time. We're like four issues in, and they're like, it's been a year. Yeah. But then the panel after that, you see the Brotherhood, and they're also eating around a table, but they, like, they have these gold goblets and this fancy looking candle they're almost like a pantheon like they're sitting around eating all this fancy fruit like you're saying and then it, it, it kind of shows it, well, i guess it shows like the good and the bad comparing them both but it also shows the young good-hearted high expectations want to be heroes and then like, as they become older the older people are more villainous and tired and they do hardly get their ass kicked by a bunch of teenagers, though. They do, and it's wild that that's what happens because, you know, maybe they've just really been training over this past year, but the first issue, they barely defeated Magneto. And now on this issue, Magneto's got a whole team of other powerful mutants, but, you know, Magneto doesn't really do anything, right? Yeah. He just kind of lets the Brotherhood fight the X-Men, and then he's like, all right, I'm going to set up some bombs and, and let's get out of here. I feel like if he used all of his powers in concert with the Brotherhood that could have took out the X-Men. Yeah, I mean, he controlled an entire naval ship with his mind, and yet he can't stop four teenagers from punching his, his lackeys. <laughs> it's funny. Yeah, so maybe it's all part of his, his master plan. Maybe this is just part one to a multi-step plan. We're going to skip forward five years to 1969. Lee and Kirby only stayed on the title for 19 issues, after which mostly writer Roy Thomas took over the book with multiple artists, and a stretch of other writers stepping in. Issue number 56 sees the introduction of artist Neil Adams to the comic, and instantly the look and quality of the book improves by leaps and bounds. It's kind of unfair to compare the artists that came before to him, but it's just true that he's on a different level for the time period. Adams brings a dynamism and energy to Thomas's stories that was, frankly, missing beforehand. What's Magneto been up to? You know, this and that. An omnipotent alien named The Stranger kidnaps him and Toad and takes them to space, but he gets back after a bit. He finds out that Quicksilver and the Scarlet Witch joined the Avengers, and he tries to get them back on his side. 
while demanding that the UN give mutants their own country. He's defeated by an X-Men Avengers team-up. At the end of the encounter, Toad kicks Magneto off a helicopter, and he's presumed dead. But come on, we're, we're not counting that one. That's pretty much it. Um, the only other thing you need to know for the next issue is that Angel accidentally ends up in the Savage Land for reasons, which is a this hidden area in Antarctica that has dinosaurs and shit. Uh, okay, without further delay. The X-Men, number 63. Roy Thomas, writer. Neil Adams, artist. Tom Palmer, embellisher. And Sam Rosen, letterer. Magneto is feeling especially maniacal as he watches Angel on this lo-fi black-and-white monitor. Well, really, he's not watching him, just evil monologuing, because the monitor is facing outward from the page anyway. The last issue, the Master of Magnetism, posing as a man named the Creator, saved Angel's life and used this as leverage to convince the winged X-Man to fight his teammates, lest they interfere with this crucial stage of his experiments. Warren doesn't yet suspect that Magneto and the kind white-haired man named Creator are one and the same, because no one has ever seen the guy without his helmet yet. Like, he doesn't even have a name at this point, he's just... Magneto. He's glad to get Angel out of his hair, because his plans have almost come to their ultimate fruition. What are those plans, you ask? Well, first, he's been experimenting on a bunch of the locals, using the energy of the South Magnetic Pole to transform them into biologically constructed mutants called mutates. That part's done. Next, he's going to perfect his greatest creation, the ultimate mutant. That's almost done. Finally, he's going to use the ultimate mutant to conquer the Savage Land. We'll see if he gets to that. Angel catches up to the X-Men, and... Oh... What a surprise, Kazar is here too, because it's the Savage Land, and of course he's fucking here. The X-Men aren't sure if Angel is Angel or not, because he's got a new costume that Magneto gave him in the previous issue. Beast suggests that they wait before doing anything, but Kazar doesn't, because he's an asshole. The poor man's George of the Jungle gets the best of Warren by ripping up a tree and hitting him with it. The X-Men convince Zarzar that it is, in fact, their friend, so he should stop hitting him. Kazar says fine, and runs ahead. Then, a bunch of the mutates show up, one of which is a giant named Gaza, who Angel says is as powerful as an XKE, which apparently was a British sports car manufactured by Jaguar for the North American market between 1961 and 1974. Iceman and Beast take him out, in, like, a panel. This frog guy named Amphibious jumps on top of Beast, pushing him to the ground, and thanks Angel for delaying the X-Men long enough for them to show up. So Kazar is all like, see? I knew that guy sucked. A bunch of guys named the Swamp Men show up to attack, and Kazar heads over to fight them. Beast helps. A four-armed guy named Barbarus also shows up, and Beast somehow still manages to outbox him with his two arms. Angel is starting to wonder what's going on here, and heads back to ask the creator some questions. He overhears a conversation with the helmetless Magneto and his crony Brainchild, who isn't a child, but is short, I guess, and has a big brain. Turns out the creator hasn't been finding mutants in the Savage Land, He's been creating them from the Savage Land inhabitants. Then, the creator puts on Magneto's helmet. Where did you get Magneto's helmet? JK, Angel realizes the creator was Magneto all along. Though he is a bit surprised because he thought the villain was dead from the time he fell into the sea in that Avengers issue. But Magneto recounts how he really just burrowed down into the earth, which is hollow, and started a huge spelunking adventure until he wound up discovering the Savage Land, which he liked so decided to conquer it as a trial run for when he conquers the rest of the world. While you're here, check out this lady I made. She's the ultimate mutant.
Before we see the lady, though, we go back to the X-Men and Kazar, who have fought through all of the Swamp Men. They arrive outside Magneto's base, and Cyclops blasts them all a VIP entrance. Waiting for them is a mutate named Lupo, whose power is to summon wolves by yelling really loud. Two can play at that game, Kazar says, and yells for his saber-toothed tiger, Zabu. Zabu wrecks like five wolves in a single panel. Okay, I, I hate Kazar, but Zabu's a very good boy. As the group enter the base, Brainchild directs Amphibious to strategically knock over a pile of stones that would crush the ensemble if Marvel Girl didn't mentally move it away. They make quick work of the two mutates and finally reach the level's boss battle as Magneto dramatically reveals himself and the ultimate mutant, Lorelei, a sensuous, captivating woman with flowing white blonde hair who can transfix any man who hears her when she sings a siren's song. Jean Grey, Marvel Girl, is immune presumably because of gender binaries and rigid sexual norms and stuff. She's thus left to fight Magneto alone. The master of magnetism has to rely on a jetpack and laser guns, because most of his powers are being channeled into this doohickey contraption that's feeding energy into the machine that's powering and controlling the mutates. Jean figures this out, and in a clever maneuver, uses her telekinesis to open Cyclops' visor, unleashing the X-Man's optic blasts first at Magneto's guns and then at the machine. Lorelai breaks free from Magneto's control, and the X-Men wake up from their trances. Desperate, Magneto tries to use the last of his power to kill his foes. If only enough of my magnetic power remains to hurl that metallic debris at them. But he isn't strong enough, and Cyclops knows it. Negative. It's too late for you, Magneto. Magneto kneels to the ground, giving up. Yes. Too late. Too late. Too late to do anything but die. The X-Men watch as crumbling wreckage falls on top of their enemy. They leave as the entire place goes up in flames. All of the machinery destroyed, the mutates transform back to their normal selves. Cyclops grows contemplative. As mutants, they'd have been mere outcasts of a society that hated them. They'll be happier when they're back to normal. Kazar is baffled by this because he's a tool. Who would want to lose powers and become just like anyone else? Did you say, who? Offhand, Kazar, I can think of at least five people, without even trying. Yeah, Cyclops, people like Kazar, they'll never get it. Wow, I just, Neil Adams just died yesterday. Yeah, I saw that. I did not know that. It's a shame. Yeah. Yeah, he he was really like a pioneer for how, you can see how many comics are influenced from his style and just really pushed the envelope and made comics and art and storytelling better. He's a legend. The, the art is completely different in this one. Oh, yeah. And it is decades far superior, even though it's still in the 60s. Neil Adams definitely upped the game for art. And th- there's there's less narrative description of the combat, and you can see it on the panel, and it's in your head because it's, it's so well fluidly drawn, and the panels give you direction and movement and oomph between some of the combat it's 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 really 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 good yeah especially for the time yeah a lot of people point to this era where roy thomas and neil adams were on x-men as being the first really good solid block of x-men comics and that's really you got to give pretty much all of that in my opinion to to neil adams because i've read other x-men comics that roy thomas wrote and they're they're not on this they're not as enjoyable as this you know and I, i talked about this in the last episode too 
too, but the story isn't necessarily any more advanced or, or complex or interesting, but it seems like it is because the way Neil Adams draws it is just much more dynamic and cool looking, basically. If you go to page seven specifically of this issue, there's an excellent panel of Akzar and Beast just stomping some guys. And it's just it's just beautiful. It's like a whole page and there's this bright red background and a bunch of blue shades for everyone else. And it's just got this really, it's very modern looking. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. Way ahead of his time. The way he, Just the way he broke down all the action and presented all the characters and their facial expressions, their physiques. Their costumes yeah. are still, like, really modern. Like, it, it's so stark to see the campiness suddenly turned off and so awesome-looking. I do like the Savage Lands. I thought it was an interesting idea. I, I don't know how I feel about it being subterranean. I, I feel like it would be cool if it was, like, some lost, misty isle that was just concealed by weather or magnetic poles or something yeah it is weird he says after i conquer the savage land then i'll conquer the surface world maybe it was different back there and maybe it was supposed to be underground because that's not how i remember it being portrayed normally it is just kind of above ground but it's just this random place in antarctica that just randomly in the middle of antarctica there's the savage land and it's just like a completely different environment than the rest of antarctica yeah i think it's like some volcanic vents or something that keep it tropical throughout yeah the cold it was an interesting choice that they're just like, well, how is there sunlight? How is there, yeah. how is there fresh water? And yeah. So it's just bad luck for Magneto that they found him. Yeah, it's a complete coincidence, right? They're, they're not there. They have no idea that Magneto is alive at this point because last time they saw him was in that Avengers comic. They thought he was dead. And that's how this always ends up, you know? It's kind of that... That thing where the detective, when they're on vacation, of course, there's always a murder. Or if they're on a plane, whenever the X-Men randomly end up somewhere, one of their villains is doing something. Yeah, they just can't get one day off, ever. Nope. I, I don't get so much of this from the, the modern Magneto, but in this issue, he's building some pretty advanced technology and basically producing mutants through science and making some sort of exoskeleton and a jetpack, even though he flew in a previous issue without a jetpack and guns, even though he can shoot bullets with his mind. Like, like it's, it's pretty funny. It's kind of weird that they had him like this, but there's one line where he says, I can't use my magnetic powers because it'll interfere with my machines or something like that. But again, I guess that's probably your thing that he had some sort of precedent of having powers that are hard to, to overpower. So they just said machines will interfere with it so that he can't use them kind of thing. Right. Yeah, he's making he's making mutants. Which one of these mutants that he made was your favorite? I like Brainchild. I like the way he looks. He's got this creepy, weird eye thing, and he's got this old man, sleazeball hair going on. Brainchild's pretty cool. I like that he points out to the frog guy, it's like, hey, if you remove that one stone brick, <laughs> this wall will just fall on all of the X-Men and Kazar. And so, like... <laughs> Amphibious goes up and jumps and removes it, and this whole wall just like crumbles down on top of them. Thought that was pretty cool. He will never lose at Jenga. He knows exactly, exactly. which ones to put. <laughs> yeah. Brainchild is the ultimate Jenga champion for sure. And I, he's probably like the least visually interesting because, like, I don't know, like he's just a caveman that suddenly is smart. But I kind of like that that he's like through science, I can make this Neanderthal a brilliant tactician. Yep. He's pretty cool. It's kind of an insult that his name is Brainchild, though, because he's obviously not a child, right? Yeah. Like, he looks like an old man, but he's just short, so I guess his name is Brainchild. It's kind of insulting. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> 
so I like I like all these guys, but the, the one I, I thought was pretty cool. I didn't have enough page time, unfortunately. But there's this dude that just screams and summons wolves. I thought that he screamed and turned into wolves. It, it doesn't really completely show you what happens because they just you don't see him unconscious. You don't see anything happen. You don't see what happens to him. I guess he just runs away. But you're right. With that context, it does kind of seem like... Honestly, I thought something similar. I thought when I when I saw... So, you, so they just come to the base and you see him in like the top left corner just screaming. And then the next panel, you just see a bunch of wolves jumping at all of them. So I was like, is, did those wolves just come out of his mouth? Right. Or did he just explode? Yeah, I... I, I don't really understand what's going in, in, in entirely this whole page because instantly he just screams Zabu and then a bigger wolf comes and like slaps the wolves <laughs> off the page. So it's well, Zab- yeah, Zabu, Zabu is his uh, saber tooth <laughs> tiger, but <laughs> Zabu just it's not even much of a fight. There, there's five or six wolves, but Zabu just tackles all of them at once somehow and they're 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 all just gone. But I like that guy. I yeah, honestly, I I didn't know what was going on with him either. I, I I looked it up. His name's Lupo. I looked at his character bio and saw that his power was to scream and summon wolves. But I like him. I would have liked it better if it was what I originally thought, and he just shot wolves out of his mouth. But <laughs> yeah. hey, would he shoot wolves or would he just vomit wolves? I, vomit, I guess. Yeah, it makes it much more disgusting and interesting. Yeah. yeah. They're just all in him. It's like, you know, that story about how we all have two wolves in us. Yeah, well, this guy's got a whole Walmart fool's worth. Yeah, he's got many wolves. And then they eventually get into Stronghold, and then Magneto just, like, struts out like he's some sort of diva. Which he is, honestly. That's kind of his thing. Oh, he is. He's it's very true. Especially back then, he is an evil diva. Yeah, that that I mean, that is the one character trait, I think, that has tracked with him on his whole history from his inception to now. He's just got a flair for the dramatic. You know, he's the most dramatic person in the room constantly. And his whole plan is to create what he calls the ultimate mutant, which they draw that out so you don't see what or who the ultimate mutant is right away. It looks like it's supposed to be homage to Dolly Parton. It's just like buxom, super blonde lady that sings. Oh, maybe. I don't know. When did she get her start? So she made her debut in 1967. Yeah, this this comic, I think, was 69. So, yeah, it could have been. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say it is. All right. It's official Jimmy White lore. Put it on the wiki. Done. The stunning, glowing lady makes all the beef boys just drool over her. Yep. For some reason, though, Magneto is immune to the noise of her voice, which doesn't get explained, I think. I guess she isn't directing her power at him. I guess. I mean, they make it seem like it's the noise that she makes that works, so I don't know. They don't explain her power at all. She just kind of shows up and goes, ooh. Yeah, and luckily they bought Jean along because she's immune to it because, you know, it seems a little like Mad Men 60s, like, we'll just make this broad not work on the other broad, huh? Right. (laughs) And then you got Magneto just like popping off his gats because he can't use his powers. Right. They have this duel. So Marvel Girl and Magneto. And then she does something pretty clever. She opens Cyclops's visor. So Cyclops is just kind of standing around. Hypnotized. Hypnotized. Right. So she just opens up the visor and then the optic blast just starts firing out at Magneto and all his machines. And that's what wins the day. I thought that was fun. It gave her some depth as a character, too. She's very creative. Yeah. And then he dies. (laughs) Apparently, right? They ruin all of his machines, everything he was trying to do, and the old machine just starts to fall at him, and he says, too late to do anything, but die. And then everybody escapes but him, and, you know, 
they're just like, there's not much hope for Magneto. It's like, they never <laughs> just wait around and find out, right? They're always just like, yep, I guess that's it for him. Yeah, well, he's definitely dead this time. Let's walk away. Yeah, guess we'll just leave. He'll never be back. Yeah, exactly. If you are familiar with the thought experiment, the ship of Theseus in the field of identity metaphysics. Naturally. The ship of Theseus is an artifact in a museum. Over time, its planks of wood rot and are replaced with new planks. When no original plank remains, is it still the ship of Theseus? Secondly, if those removed planks are restored and reassembled free of the rot, is that the ship of Theseus? Neither is the true ship. Both are the true ship. Well, then we are agreed. All right, we're moving ahead one year to 1970. The Cold War is still a thing. A big deal, actually. After the Cuban Missile Crisis, the U.S. and USSR set up a direct line of communication known as the Red Phone, in case a need arose to explain any situation that might cause one of the nations to believe the other is preparing for a nuclear attack. In 1969, the Doomsday Clock, a metaphorical clock set by the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, to indicate how far away we are from nuclear catastrophe, is currently set at 10 minutes to midnight. This is an improvement over 1968, a response to the ratification of the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty by the U.S. Senate. Still, 10 minutes isn't a whole lot of time. Fantastic, Fantastic Four, Four, number 102. 102. Produced and presented by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby. Joe Sinat and Belisher. Artie Simic, Letterer. Let's see, the thing has a flu, uh, Crystal is trying to feed him some medicine, then he sneezes, knocking over all the furniture in the room. Meanwhile, Namor, the Submariner, King of Atlantis, arrives on the shores of the Savage Land. Thankfully, Kazar does not show up. Namor has ordered one of his Navy's submarine captains to take him here, in order to investigate a mysterious shockwave. Turns out it was the mighty explosion of Magneto's lab that we saw in X-Men number 63. Except that isn't what happened in X-Men number 63. There, there was no explosion. His base just kind of burned down. But anyway, Namor sees Magneto in a pile of rubble and fights off a flock of pterodactyls. Imperious Rex! The Submariner takes the dying man back to Atlantis in order to save him. A bit later, back in New York City, Johnny Storm is flying back to the Baxter building with more cold medicine for the thing, when he sees the top of a skyscraper rip clean off and fly through the air towards him the Human Torch is able to lead the massive death structure safely into a nearby bay. But the strangeness doesn't stop there. The Thing and Mr. Fantastic look out the window and see the whole skyline littered with floating metallic junk. What could be causing this bizarre disturbance? Or who? It's Magneto. Magneto is doing it. Atlantean Healthcare has him feeling his best self, and even more than that, he's found advanced technology here capable of magnifying his magnetic powers a hundredfold. Wow. Playtime is interrupted, however, as he's summoned to court for an audience with Namor. There, the mutant attempts to persuade the Submariner to his cause. Neither you nor I are truly human, Namor. Neither of us will ever be trusted by the world above. Therefore, why do we not join forces? Think of it, Submariner. Your power combined with mine. Who could hope to stand against us? But Namor doesn't want war, at least not this minute. 
but he does see Magneto's side of the argument. Let's go back to the Baxter building, where Mr. Fantastic is developing a magnetracer that can track the source of the strange magnetic bullshit. He discovers that it's coming from Atlantis. The thing is irate. You mean, the blasted Submariners behind all this? I'll moito the bum. Before jumping to any conclusions, however, Reed sends a sonic wave to Atlantis to warn them against further hostilities. Right after he does, Reed's lab starts going haywire, as cables and electrodes tangle around Ben like tentacles. Reed tries to help his friend, but is wrestled to the ground by the animated apparatuses himself. When Johnny tries to step in, another one of Reed's machines fires a vacuum blast at the Human Torch. Crystal finally uses her elemental powers to destroy the offending machines. Pissed off, the Thing presses a button that will launch a concussion missile to follow after the sonic wave. Back in Atlantis, the sonic wave rips through the city. It's actually a lot more devastating than you'd think it'd be, considering Reed just casually sent it out with the press of a button. Like, all kinds of structures are crumbling and collapsing, and Namor saves hundreds of lives when he stops a giant arch from collapsing. So, that thing about not wanting war? Yeah, fuck that. He calls Magneto in and asks him if he knows anything about the attack. Magneto does, in fact. He's tracked the source back to the Baxter building, home of the Fantastic Four. Before they can decide their next move, a missile is detected, approaching Atlantis at incalculable speed. Magneto knows his missiles, so recognizes it as a harmless concussive type, but keeps his mouth shut. Namor swims out to intercept the weapon. He catches it and hurls it away from his city. Magneto watches and slowly lurks away. He monologues to himself in his thoughts, satisfied that his plan to goad the Submariner is working. So long as men feel the end can justify the means, so long as they seek to justify battle and carnage and endless killing, so long will Magneto still have a chance to destroy the human race. Whether on the surface or beneath the sea, their foolish pride, their anger, their fears drive them to war. Even as they long for peace, the fools, the blind unwitting fools. He's doing something with some machinery here as he thinks this, but not really clear what. The implication is that he was the one to cause all the damages the sonic wave supposedly inflicted, but it doesn't say that, so I don't know, maybe Reed Richards is just an asshole, take your pick. As Magneto walks back out of the shadows, he sees that the Atlantean armies are assembling. They ride to war. At the Baxter building, Reed criticizes Ben for firing that missile before it was ready, but the thing shrugs it off. So I made one crummy mistake. It ain't the end of the world, is it? I... Wish I could answer that, Ben. Because just then, alarms sound, and the Fantastic Four detects a fleet of warships headed for New York. Don't miss next issue. Editor's Footnote I forgot to mention this in any of the episode introductions, or in my conversation with Jimmy, but this is the last Fantastic Four issue Jack Kirby drew. He was on the book for all of the comic's first 102 issues, but he left the title in Marvel between this one and 103. Early X-Men isn't the best showcase for the King. This issue is more representative. He certainly doesn't deploy the same photorealistic style as Neil Adams. His strengths are pure imagination and creativity. In a different time and place, he would have been a perfect concept artist for big production fantasy films and sci-fi blockbusters. His eye was so distinct that comic creators and fans will still talk about Kirby machines and Kirby hats. 
It's certainly an odd comic for Kirby to end his 102-issue run, but so it goes. But that's the big reveal of him coming back. The first thing he does is just start more shit. Doesn't miss a beat. <laughs> it's it's like fun to read, but when you really like think about it all, it's just like, so Magneto escapes the Savage Lands, hitchhikes to Atlantis, lies about what's going on, somehow occupies their technology, and then attack the Fantastic Four, which he then has them trace the signal back to Atlantis on purpose so that they come for justice and then he says yo they're attacking you when he starts to collapse the city as they arrive it's just this like so complicated and so crazy and somehow it works but yeah yeah magneto's kind of playing both sides against each other and really he just wants namor to help him in his war against humanity this is silver age magneto what are your thoughts overall growing up knowing magneto and how dynamic and interesting he is this just feels like a completely different character to me. For one, he barely uses his magnetic powers that we're familiar with. He uses a lot of technology and just deceit. Yeah, you're right, though. He is powered down at this point because, you know, a lot of the stuff he was doing in this Fantastic Four issue, they, they say he had to amplify his powers with this machine. But, I mean, that's stuff he could just easily do now. I like some of the creativity that he has with deception and tactician. I feel like that's an important role that he has later in the comics. He knows how to command his side of the mutant forces and be strategic and a strong leader. But this is this is just kind of a fraction of what really makes him an interesting character. He doesn't seem like there's any compassion for what he's doing. He's just like, I'm just going to blow shit up now because we're better than humans rather than we're being persecuted and I want to protect us from that. And it has to be through violence because that's all they speak. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So in these early comics, Marvel, I think they try to make the heroes a little bit more sympathetic and relatable versus some of the other superheroes in their competitors who were more motivated just by generally wanting to fight crime because that's the right thing to do, etc. But the villains at this point in time are, are really just people to go against them. Yeah. And so it isn't until much later is it when writers really want to make the villains sympathetic and relatable as well. You know, it isn't until Chris Claremont when he's writing X-Men years later. It's funny, if the first few times Magneto shows up when he's writing him, he's still pretty much that one-dimensional villain. But eventually, he gives him this background where he's a Holocaust survivor and he has a reason to distrust humanity. Yeah. So then he becomes more a freedom fighter and more a political activist in his... Yeah. In what he's doing versus... Yeah. There's more than just one dimension of good versus bad. It, there's, there's many sides in it. That's what makes X-Men and just their, the whole catalog of a lot of those Marvel stories so interesting. Thank you to returning guest Jimmy White. If you haven't listened to the episode we did on Spider-Man, you could go do that if you want. You can also find Jimmy on Twitch under the name Broken Hero Parts. And thank you, gentle listener, for coming along for the ride. If you enjoyed it, feel free to do all those super helpful things you can do with podcasts. Give it a good rating, write a review, tell some friends. The show has pretty small social media presence at this point, but if you want to help with that, you can search for DR Comic Books on Twitter or DR Comic Bookie on Instagram. You know, like Dr. Comic Books. I, I'm not a doctor. I chose it because D and R stand for death and resurrection, but then I really... Anyway, there's an email too drcomicbookie at gmail.com. Feel free to contact me unless you're, like, trying to scam me or something. 
I've got one more episode on the docket for this season, which will be on The Scarlet Witch, and then the show will return in the fall for season two. I don't have a hard date on that yet, but stay tuned. Uh, well, uh, sorry, Jimmy, we, we tried. We, we, got, <laughs> we, we found the laboratory, we found all the technology. I think it probably would have worked, but... It felt like it was working. I mean, I feel like maybe I'm standing upright a little. Am I? You're definitely standing now. That's neat. Here, let me, let me give you a treat. That's just for you, man. For you, buddy. <sighs> I'm sorry, I just fell down. Oh, this treat's delicious. Yeah, that was a cool trick you did. I'm going to stay on my, my, all, my all four poles for, for now. I guess we're back at square one, though. Kind of sucks, but at least I got uh, someone to scratch my ear. That's what it's all about. But hey, who's that coming out of the water? Coming out of the water? <laughs> Look, like, looks like it's Atlanteans. They definitely smell like Atlanteans. Maybe they have the technology you need. I think what we should do is plan some kind of elaborate, overly complex plot to get in there, steal their technology, reverse this dog treatment. I like it. I'm yeah. down. Okay, we got this, Ben. All let's right, do it. let's do it. Sometime later. All right, here we are sneaking around in Atlantis, and what do you know? They have a machine specifically for people trapped in a dog. I need you to push the buttons because I don't have opposable thumbs though. Okay, okay. Just do me a favor, make sure it's set to people. I don't want to get turned into a fish. Right, right, I am checking for that. Not a fish, not a whale, not an eel. Oh, definitely not an eel. Sure you don't want to be like a shark? No, I'd, I'd really like to be uh, back in my body. What about a whale? They got some cool music. You know, I just, I enjoy my bed and I enjoy my stuff and I can't really use my bed or my stuff as a whale. I'm kind of stuck in the ocean. Plus, sure. I don't want this guy telling me what to do all the time. He seems kind of bossy too. True, true. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, person, please. Please and thank you. All uh, right. What about Atlantean? You know what, actually? Yeah, let's do Atlantean. All right. All right, I'm ready. Oh, God, it hurts. It hurts. <laughs> I'm joking. It doesn't hurt. It feels incredible. Wow, you got you got blue skin, my friend. Yeah, but check out these cannons. Oi. Man, Atlanteans are strong. Yeah, man. They're I'm gonna pick you up, Ben. Alright. Ah! Put you down. Maybe I should transform into Atlantean too. Alright, you get it, I'll do the buttons now. Alright. And dog. Click. Hey! Uh, 